60 people versus eight makes for exciting firefights. Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. The single greatest sacrifice I've made is my family. We weren't out there to take country, we were out there to lose it. I did feel a lot of regret. Friends were still getting killed. It got to the point where, you know, you're going to humans quite Do often. Do I lead under fire? And that was a heavy responsibility, I guess, on my shoulders that I didn't want to screw up. War itself is horrific. It's a horror story. It should never be dressed up as if it's something glorious. Not what you can do for yourself, or what can you do for your country. The volunteer for service was, in effect, to put your life on the line. Donald McDowell is a veteran of the Australian Army Training Team Vietnam. The AATTV was a specialist unit of Australian Army military advisors, active from 1962 to 1973. It was specifically raised as part of Australia's contribution to the Vietnam War. It's one of Australia's most heavily decorated units, including four Victoria Crosses. Today's interview was recorded over Zoom. There is a little bit of an echo that creeps into the sound recording from time to time we unfortunately could not avoid. In this veteran conversation, Don spoke to Angus Horden about his military career, his time in Vietnam, and his reflections on the war. I'm Angus Horden, and today I'm speaking with Don McDowell. Don, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you, Angus, for inviting me and Alex. Don, could we start off at the beginning? Did you have any history in your family of military service? Going back to my grandparents and my granduncles, the three of them went over in the First World War and either were killed overseas or came back seriously ill and died as a result of their injuries. But my immediate parents and forebears had no interest in the military. I don't know why. Absolutely none. And their interests were as artisans, um, metal workers and fabricators and fitters and turners and the like. I'm the breakaway child. Do you specifically remember theatres or actions that your uh, forebears served in? We have no family history saved about them, save when they went and when they died. Don, your experience with the military started at school with the Cadet Corps. Yes. Second year high school, instead of uh, being signed up to play rugby and run around a field and get kicked because I was a small guy, I joined the school Cadet Corps. It enthused me um, amazingly. So I set as my goal that I would become a cadet under officer And during the rest of my high school, I also joined a night organisation of the air cadets and had the same goals. And so I eventually became both a cadet pilot officer and a cadet under officer. And my goal simply was to go to Duntroon after school. How long was your military service with the cadets and the Air Force cadets then? Um, Five years with the Army cadets, four years, I think, with the Air Force cadets. What happened with regard to your early uh, attempt to get into the um, Royal Military College at Duntroon? I got in easily enough and joined a, a bunch of about 30 boys, rather like me, untested, straight from high school, etc. I loved the military training at Duntroon in the first year, absolutely adored it, hated the academic training, which was a reflection of my poor academic record at Sydney Boys High. So I, I failed the year academically and passed with flying colours in the military topics. And they offered me several options, all of which meant I would be thrown out one way or another. So I got to leave rather nicely as a failed academic record. I went straight into a job with the Overseas Telecommunications Commission, then shifted and went up to Newcastle to join a friend and joined Dalgetty's 
as their senior shipping clerk at the ripe old age of 17, you know, ridiculous stuff. Um, but all I wanted to do during that out year, 1958, was to get back into the Army. So I applied mid-year to go to Portsea and was rejected. I applied at the end of the year because it was six-monthly separation to go, and I was accepted in strange circumstances. The colonel, the lieutenant colonel running the selection, the second selection towards the end of 58, took me aside on the first morning when we gathered at Watson's Bay. And he said to me that the colonel commandant of Officer Cadet School, who normally would be there to run selection, had fallen off a ladder and broken his collarbone. And that was good news for me because he didn't like me and that's why he rejected me mid-year. And the reason for not liking apparently was, well, I was a failed Duntroon boy. He told me, of course, I would get in and to just shut up and be quiet and let all the other applicants show their mettle during the two days of selection. So, Don, walk us through qualifying now that you've got in back into the military. What he trains you, Officer Cadet School, that is, trains you in military arts. Because I'd spent so long in the Cadet Corps, I'd learned almost all of those military skills and I'd been examined and passed in all sorts of weapons handling and infantry minor tactics and so on. So I loved Portsy. It was an absolutely brilliant place to be. The Commandant still didn't like me and, in fact, on the final day took my mother aside. She'd come down for graduation and told her he didn't expect me to have passed. And that's all he said to her, um, which made me think he was still a strange man, even though a colonel. She thought he was a bit of a silly man for saying that. But overall, Portsy was a brilliant experience. Run around, be shot at, learn your skills, learn driving, be encouraged to show yourself and do things and make your own mind up. Um, and it was all great grounding, I thought. So when you finished your training at Portsea, where were you posted? I'd applied to join engineers on the basis that you didn't walk to war, you always rode in something, rather like your Navy chaps. I was posted to the School of Military Engineering and I spent a year in what was called the Long Officers Training Course that teaches you everything about military engineering. That's civil engineering involving waste and sewage, water supply, road building, uh, demolitions, operations of road, plant and the like. My whole year was taken up doing that. You actually have an extensive time in training, but you then go into a series of very interesting actions and perhaps we might focus a bit on those if that's convenient. And I was thinking, I think in 1962, you had qualified as an army shipmaster yep. and you were in landing crafts. Could you talk on that? Well, that was as, as a result of doing a one-year-long transportation course where you learnt to drive vessels and trains and um, operate ports and the like. In 62, we had run out of jobs for young second lieutenants and I was the youngest. And for that reason, my course colleagues during 61 and the long training course, they all got to be first mates on our four landing ship medium. We only had four LSMs and I was the leftover army officer and they said well you can join the water transport troop that operates out of Sydney Harbour and we had work boats long boats fast uh, torpedo boats converted into fast hospital launches and that year we were going to acquire some landing craft the army led a contract to build two landing craft in Devonport and Tasmania 
with one night's notice, I was ordered to go next morning with a group of troops down to Tasmania, conduct sea trials of these new boats, and then sail the first one back to Sydney. It was a, a lovely assignment. It deflected me because I was meant to go to Sydney Conservatorium and um, sit that morning for my um, last exam that would allow me entry into being trained as a concert pianist. And um, I had to drop that whole thing and go off, fly off to Devonport. Well, it was my first flight and my first ship with my first independent command. So we did the sea trials and then set off for Sydney. Unfortunately, army movements ordered us out of Devonport, ignoring the fact that there was a gale operating across the Bass Strait and it was just winding itself up and finishing off. So we sailed into the gale and by the time we got uh, just past the islands in the strait, we had lost my bow door control mechanisms, uh, which meant the bow door was hanging off a couple of shackles and letting sea wash in, uh -huh. which meant the bow was going down. There was nothing we could do about it. And the ship uh, escorting us, an LSM, backed up towards us in these gale waters and pitching violently, tried to pass us a tow line, which it did. And we got the tow line across and started to fit it. And the ship's master of the LSM, well known for caution, so I say, went flank ahead and the, bow, uh, the tow line tightened up and my two engineers, the only two I had on board, were caught in the bite of the tow line and both cracked their heads and had injuries. So I was limping without a tow across Bass Strait without my engineers at the time when our double, the double rudders then broke and I had one rudder left, two engines, and half of my crew gone. So it was exciting. Don, it's funny you should say that um, unless you've ever been caught in Bass Strait, which unfortunately I too have been, you don't really have an appreciation for what you're actually talking about. And I digress for a moment, but I remember being caught in a yacht. We sailed out of Lakes Entrance, Victoria, coming back to Sydney. And for four days, we tried to tack north. And for four days, we were pushed back. And the only thing that enabled us to move in the end was the breaking of the gale or storm, what was ever on us. I've never been so sick in my life and I'll never forget that experience so I do feel for you and I think and also look you you're, you're running a landing craft you're not running a yacht or a normal should I say nautical or more seagoing vessel that would have been very difficult uh, landing craft have flat bottoms people forget that it only drew three feet so it was the sort of craft that would roll on a wet pool table so let's leave the landing craft yes. and perhaps go forward. Look, unfortunately, you had a, you were confronting a bit more uh, controversy later with, you know, a collision with the Sydney. Yep. I'm the, the only one who has. And just again, victim of circumstance, not my training or, or my troops. We're coming alongside the Sydney and in, intending to uh, stand off uh, just away from its side, but pull up next to a pontoon that had been anchored under one of the gun swansons alongside, the gun platforms alongside the Sydney. As I approached it at about three knots, I suppose, just enough, a gust of wind came off the headland that is inboard of Garden Island and strong wind off that straight beam onto my craft. So I wasn't going to clear the gun sponson. I was actually pushed against the side of the Sydney, still doing three knots, heading straight for the gun platform and hit it. Quite a lot of damage to my craft, hardly any to the Sydney. But the numbers of three and four ring people bending over the flight deck 
looking down at me, wanting to do battle with me for having dared to hit them was quite exciting, shall we say. Terribly bad luck, because as you know, in Sydney, the, the winds do buffet off the headlands. And, uh, and if you're in a landing craft, which again is a pretty square looking vessel, you, you're going to catch the wind. So if we leave what happened with the Sydney and in particular the, the other landing craft going across Bass Strait, in 1960, you were trained as an army engineer in, in many areas, including demolitions. I'd been trained in the standard army approach that had existed since World War II, basically. You always used TNT blocks, which are like little house bricks about that size and maybe that thick. And you always needed a detonator inside of them. And then you put a fuse in. That was great. Um, I never got to blow anything up because we, all we did was exercises, but we sure learned how to do it. But the trouble is when I later went and did special operations training, I learned that instead of carrying a haversack full of TNT blocks to blow a hole in a railway line, I could take a single stick of plastic explosive, C4, and I could do a much better job with that. 1964, you were later trained at a Secret Service base concerning clandestine activities with the demolitions. That's right. When I left language school, because I spent a year being trained as a Vietnamese linguist, I applied for what was called special operations. And I got a phone call right at the end of the year, just before Christmas, from Canberra Army Headquarters, demanding to know how I knew about this course because nobody was supposed to know about it. And I said, it's in the Army circular listed. And I saw it and it sounds good and I want to do it. And they said, well, nobody from language training has ever done it before. So now that you know about it, we can't pretend that the secrecy still exists. So we'll let you on sufferance go on it. So off I went. And it was eight weeks of really rigorous, hard training in all sorts of sneaky special operations things like commandos, um, but with an, uh, a flavour of being dropped behind enemy lines like SAS. And we had to learn better ways of using our handguns and our rifles or machine guns, better ways of blowing things up, better ways of communicating, a bit about psychological warfare and propaganda. Very full eight weeks and a wonderful course to have done. And Don, what made you decide to leave mainstream army and go into special ops? Well, the opportunity was there. When I was graduating from language training, I had been told that uh, because I could speak Vietnamese, I should now go to Albert Park and the Defence Signals Directorate. And my new career was no longer an engineer, but to translate and interpret radio and documentary copy. And eventually I would be sent to somewhere for further training, probably Bangkok or maybe Hong Kong. Uh, but I would always be coming back to defence signals type work. And I thought, that's really boring. After having sailed the high seas and now speaking Vietnamese while we had a war running, I wanted to go to the war. So, Don, where did that then take you? You've, you've got this skill set of the language. How long is it till they're calling you up to Vietnam? What they told me on the course was that I was destined to join the training team in Vietnam, that my role would be one that used all my skills and that before I left for Vietnam, I had to then go through either scuba training or parachute training, my choice. Also go to Canungra to do jungle warfare training. After that, I could go to Vietnam and take up my role special duties, they called it. They didn't describe what they were. They just said they'd use all my skills and I would not be a regular part of the Army training team. 
So were they alluding that you would be posted to that very elite unit, the Australian Army Training Team Vietnam? But it, it was then running at uh, somewhere between 60, 70 people a year. However, there were two or three always pulled aside and given special duties, and I was to join that sort of subset, if you like. Part of the commando-style training was to imagine that I was going to be dropped into North Vietnam, and how would I go about recruiting people to the cause and then leading them in guerrilla activities? Although there were 12 of us on that course, that direction was directed at two of us only, both of us army captains, and we were slated to lean what were called Australian liaison teams destined for guerrilla activities in North Vietnam. John, it's appropriate now that we should actually talk about the Australian Army training team Vietnam. It's been said often that it's probably the most professional unit that the Army ever has produced in any war. Certainly in Vietnam, they were first in and last out. It is, as I understand, the most highly decorated unit. It is so very highly regarded. And um, what a compliment for you to go to that unit. So could, could we talk about your involvement with the AATTV? Once I settled down in Vietnam, I was assigned to work with CIA. And I'd known that was coming after being trained at Queenscliff. The uh, role for CIA involved living and working in Phuc Thuy province as the CIA case officer. My colleagues, Australian members, similarly assigned away from the army, but to work for CIA, were case officers in other provinces. In my province, there was just me and my offsider, an army warrant officer. And the role was uh, multifaceted. I was co-commandant of what was the National Psychological Warfare Centre, which is located near Vung Tau. The centre was run by a Vietnamese captain um, who did all the psychological warfare training. As co-commandant, I managed the whole thing and made sure everything was tickety-boo, all the bills were paid, all the troops were there, recruitment happened the way it was meant to. Bills, you know, we, we did everything to make the centre run. But my case officer duty included being the CIA offsider to the province chief. And so I visited him and got to be close with him every week of the whole time I was there. His goal was to keep security in the province, and I was asked about every second week to target a particular village that he would pick because of rumours or information about security problems, and I would take my paramilitary troops, travel there, fight my way in if, we, if that's what we had to do, defend the village and start trying to gather information that would lead to intelligence. So I had these complementary roles that just meant I was busy all the time, either running around the jungle with my troops or liaising with the province chief or making sure the camp ran properly. Don, you would have been in many engagements. Were there any in particular that come to mind? I'm not sure how watchers and listeners will take this comment but I had a really fun war and I have this ability to see the good and the funny in most situations unless they're deadly serious. I had often patrols where we ran into the enemy but though the enemy were local VC, not particularly well organised, bloody dreadful shots, hopeless at their weapon skills and it wasn't until we ran into rather larger company size groups with me only with perhaps a section patrolling. So 60 people versus eight makes for exciting firefights. We never lost anyone. We never got anybody wounded. 
we did get a, quite a few KIA, many captured, and that was the, the thing I was aiming for, to capture the enemy so that they could be debriefed and interrogated and eventually indoctrinated, one would hope. I don't think there's anything wrong about saying you had a good war um, and that's fortunate for you because not enough people do have good wars. But again, good training and good luck play a lot in that. Can I add that the Americans I ran into found it very difficult to understand our way of fighting. Um, we, we had been really well trained, I've got to admit that. Our infantry minor tactics, that's rolling around the countryside with 30-man platoons or 60-man companies, was really, really good. So that every time we got into battle, we knew what to do, where to go, how to act, how to report back, what was going on and so on. The Americans that I met watched us on one occasion doing displays of how we would deal with a firefight and kept saying, where are your heavy weapons? <laughs> and, and, of course, when you're running around the jungle with 10 people or 30 people, there are not a lot of heavy weapons you've got with you, like none. What you can carry is what, what you've got. Uh, I remember one occasion when we had a truck blowing up and it tipped over and all the kids inside fell out. My, my propaganda people from the camp, they fell out and were crying and carrying on. And we watched two of the enemy running across the second paddy field away. We're looking at the hole, it was easy to see this was a command-detonated bomb. In other words... Somebody watched what we were doing, had the bomb in place and put the wires on the battery or whatever method they used when they saw the truck was at the right place. So they were running across the paddy field and I just said to my section, two of you go after them, bring them back. There was no gunshots exchange, none, none of that. They just their two people running across paddy fields and my two people chasing after them. The American commander came round, the province advisor, came round the corner, ordered me to bring my troops back and planned to bring in six rounds of 155 howitzer to get these two boys running away. 155 howitzer, one round would blow up the average house. Six rounds of that for two kids running away struck me as completely stupid, but an order was an order. And my guys came back and it took an hour and 10 minutes to fire the six rounds, in which time you couldn't see the boys running away. So the whole thing just stuck with me that the Americans weren't capable or inclined to fight a small war. They wanted a set-piece battle somewhere. I found a big difference was how we would move in the jungle versus how they would move in the jungle how slowly and quietly we would move versus the way the Americans would move. Yeah. And, and I think our casualties reflected that. I never patrolled with Americans. I, occasionally I would get an American officer attached to me for patrol experience, but that would be one person and therefore it'd be under my command while we were out on a patrol. But I never went anywhere near uh, the battlefield when Americans in numbers were doing their thing, uh, mostly because they were fighting a, a different war. On one occasion, we came under, I came under fire by a sniper living in, at the edge of a village that was probably four or 500 metres maximum away. And the sniper had a really good weapon, one of the heavier Russian rifles, and the bullets were bouncing off the roadway where I had been walking along. They were coming nowhere near me. I mean, five or six feet away. So all I could think was this guy couldn't aim properly or his weapon wasn't up to it or I was exceptionally lucky. I ordered my squad to race to the village but do it through the paddy fields because I knew that where he was lying, 
he couldn't get line of sight down to the paddy fields where the buns separated the fields were particularly high in this village. And my men would be safe running across that. This same American colonel came up behind me eventually, a sniper had stopped firing, and ordered in a helicopter gunship. And the gunship came in with suppressed fire from the, the village. And I said, well, there's only one guy firing at us. Uh, leave it to me, he said. The helicopter flew over and machine gunned my troops in the paddy field, which wasn't the edge of the village. Fortunately, the helicopter gunner was hopeless and none of the bullets hit any of my kids, although it scared the hell out of them. And we had a raging argument as a result of that. John, in 1965, you um, secured a village, I remember you saying, but there was a VC attack. Yeah, I went to the village, the village called Oimi. The village was protected by its own self-defence group, uh, which was about platoon strength, but very weak, so 25 people, 22 people, with the second lieutenant in command. I quickly worked out the second lieutenant had only the most basic training and wasn't capable of doing anything complex. So I took him out on a patrol to help us search for the enemy and a couple of them fired at us and then scurried away. So when we came back to the camp that night, the second lieutenant and his wife asked me to dinner and I and my troops slept in a big, bamboo longhouse, had dinner, then slept. And during the night, VC came up in larger numbers and started machine gunning the house. This sounds weird, but the house was built up on a hill. It was only about a 10 or 12 foot high hill, but it was a hill. The VC were down in the mud, aiming upwards. So all the machine gunning went through the sides and out through the roof, frightened the bejesus out of everybody, including the second lieutenant and his wife. And next day we did another clearing patrol to see if we could find them. All we found were shell casings, but no VC. A few days later, once I'd evacuated that village I, I left, I got a report that said, province chief wants us to go back to the village of course, it has been attacked and there are lots of deaths. And we discovered that that second lieutenant had led his troops out on another patrol and they'd been ambushed. Almost all of them were dead. The monsoon was in full force, was pouring with rain. All the bodies had been evacuated up to a makeshift morgue near the province capital. And I was asked to go up and verify the identities of these troops, checking that they were dead, what the wounds were, what papers they had on them, verifying their IDs if I could. And I did that with, it stuck in my heart really, because the wives of some of those soldiers, including the second lieutenant, had been abandoned at the morgue. All provincial officials had left. The bodies were in the morgue, which was a mud brick building, basically. There was a truck outside which had brought the families and the bodies up and their families were sitting under the truck in the mud uh, with this pouring rainstorm over the top of us. So I went in and did my thing. I identified the commander's body and came out and rescued the wife of that second lieutenant, put her and the other survivors in the truck and detail one of my guys to drive them into shelter in the province capital. And then two weeks later, I was invited up to Saigon to uh, visit the house of the second lieutenant family and sympathise, empathise with them in a sort of home-centred memorial service about it all. Really really got to me. Still does. And, Don, have you stayed in touch with them? No. 
They didn't seem to want that. They were full of gratitude for what I'd done, full of thanks for the help I'd given the village, even though the village was now totally without protection and for the future would not further be protected until occasionally, two or three years later, Australian troops would patrol through it. And that lady had no intention, the wife, of going back there. That wasn't where she was from. Um, she was from a different province. All sad and all very poignantly human about how the big picture narrows down really tightly into who's left and how's it affected. My warrant officer got sick a couple of months after I uh, went into this job and had to leave, I mean, it was really serious, and had to leave the theatre. And I, we was never replaced. There was no sense that AATTV headquarters in Saigon would give me a, another warrant officer. So I spent the rest of the year always working alone with the Vietnamese. But I was a linguist, so I had dozens of friends, basically. This was all of the AATTV that... It wasn't, for example, a platoon or a company-sized organisation. You were individual specialists tasked with these specific missions. You needed to blend in and provide influence and intel in your particular area, which you clearly did. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I keep running into veterans of AATTV and they all talk about, particularly online, about how they used to have gatherings in Da Nang or Nha Trang or up in Galat, and they'd get together for Anzac Day or whatever. And I thought, I spent the whole bloody year by myself, basically. But I was happy with it. It was, it was a really good life, and we were doing good things. And in that year, Don, besides obviously that particular engagement in the village, was it pretty peaceful otherwise? I find that hard to answer. Every village I went into, almost all of them, we had to fight our way in and kick the VC out. But we're only talking about two or five or six or seven VC hanging around because they didn't need more people per village than that. So there was that constant security challenge. But by and large, with one notable exception, the villagers were happy to see us. Life was peaceful. It was poor, but they were country folk and they were farming rice or growing vegetables or whatever they were doing. And we never had any of the larger pitch battles that other advisors encountered. So that would have count for perhaps my saying it was a good war because it didn't involve huge battles. It just involved a constant, low-level conflict. The goal was to not only secure the village, but to do so to achieve a major objective, which was to proselytise the villagers about the good things the government had done, was doing, and would do for them, where the government policies were going and how the village fitted in with that. Now, we achieved that by, in every village, having nightly meetings with all the villagers and uh, entertaining them. I had a singing troupe, if you like, of girls who were entertainers, and we would sing songs with the villagers. Then we'd talk to them, and it was relatively low-level pitch of propaganda. The way to unlock their interest and encourage their enthusiasm was to do things that they needed done. We dug road uh, drainage ditches. We cleared out culverts. We repaired potholes in roads. We did the same thing for buildings. If there was a built structure with falling down walls or roof holes or any of that, my kids from the training course knew how to do that, low-level, do-it-yourself type structure. When it came to the village schools, we would offer to rest their teachers and run more classroom sessions 
for the school children. Normally they had a one teacher school for any age and we could had enough kids on my staff so that we could separate the school kids out into different groups and run normal classes, history, geography, and some politics and Vietnamese language and stuff like that. And I and a couple of girls specialised in medical aid. I'd been well trained in various places in the years preceding in basic battlefield medicine, uh, which included sewing up wounds and cleaning out deep gashes and handing out medicines and doing the like. Um, so I would take that role simply to show them that, so the villagers, that advisors were not just battlefield warriors, but they were in fact humanitarians. And that was specified goal of from CIA of what we were meant to do. And it worked a treat, honestly. We had Air America working as the CIA airline, and it ranged from little titchy-witchy aeroplanes um, that could do battlefield monitoring or forward air controller work, right up to C-46, slightly bigger size than the DC-3. They would carry troops or a couple of tonnes of equipment. You had a very eventful and productive year with the AATTV. I mean, really, what you achieved was classic book of what they were seeking to achieve. So I can understand how you could reasonably say that you had a good experience there because you were able to join in with the locals, work with them, make a difference. You didn't suffer too many casualties. You weren't forced into too many big killings. You know, it was more, you know, keep the order, spread the good word. You did very well. Well, that was the goal of my school. The school turned out cadres called Advanced Political Action Cadres, and they were the kids that we trained in all those skills I talked to you about. What they were not trained in was anything military beyond purely personal weapon self-defence. Mm. They weren't sent out to villages all over Vietnam mm. to fight. They were sent out to become the local province chief's do-gooder agency. Mm. And that's, that's what we intended to do. It must have been hard, I imagine, although... Equally, I imagine you might have been keen to sort of have a break because you, you were deployed for a full year. How did it finish up for you? Um, well, I did have a break, I have to say that. When I got first down to Bung Tao, the guy I was relieving had arranged to go for four days to Hong Kong for a break. So I joined him and went and had my time off. The rest of the year, I just worked. By the time I got to the end of the year, it had taken personal toll in the sense that my then wife had um, decided to leave me. I was planning to get a divorce and I realised towards the end that the people I loved were the Vietnamese and the ones close to me, my driver, co-commandant, his lieutenant, the chief of the girls, you know, they were all part of my inner team that had been used to plan every single insertion into every target village. So those were the people I loved and trusted and relied on. I found it very, very hard at the end. And I was warned and protected by those people because on, in the last week, I discovered that my driver came out, was armed and ready to come out on a patrol with me. And he'd never done that before. And I said, well, he can't come with me. And the, co the, the camp commandant took me aside and said, Toe is aware, like we all are, that you are acting as if you now have nothing serious to live for after Vietnam. 
and we're not going to let you die in Vietnam. So I immediately pulled back, and that was a real shock to my ego, I suppose, and I realised I'd been acting very selfishly, and I was still their commander, and I should make myself operate as their commander and not be focusing on my own problems. And I took a very softly, softly exit. Uh, the only hard bit was uh, at the last, I had all of the camp staff and students and soldiers lined up, so about 800 people. And I spoke to them for nearly an hour in Vietnamese about what I thought about the war, their chances, uh, the strategies, my involvement and my sadness at leaving. And that was it. Don, have you been back? Yeah, I've been back um, once. SBS put together a team to make a documentary film about the training team in 2015. And so I went back as part of a small group of advisors and was interviewed in Vung Tau and went to some of the villages where I'd done work and done operations. It was interesting to see the country, lovely to see the country. So much had changed. It's like now if I drive around Sydney being a Sydney boy, I can't recognise anything. Well, that was about my experience in Vietnam. I couldn't find my camp. I just couldn't find it. They bulldozed it and built something else there. But it was good to be part of the film experience. It's been a massive year of service in, in that particular deployment. I mean, for the rest of your time in the military, other events really wouldn't come up to that. Well, partly that's because uh, the military didn't know what we'd done in Vietnam and the, many of the key officers involved in posting you and looking after your career couldn't have cared less about our service in Vietnam. And I was certainly told, like others, that we hadn't had a real war. And if we wanted war experience, we had to go back as part of the task force because what we did didn't count. And all I could think of was an awful lot of people spent their time shooting at me. What the hell was that about if it wasn't a real war? Uh, but they're not thoughts you could articulate without getting accused of being an ingrate or some insufferable person. MacArthur, when he was referring to the Coast Watchers, the Australian Coast Watchers in the Second World War, which was not dissimilar to you in the sense that you were posted out by yourself, given great responsibility and really there to, to run your own show, how much good those few people did. And that's certainly been the case with you, Don, with your situation. How did you find after giving so much and achieving so, so much good there, like absolutely mission accomplished, which few forces can say was achieved in Vietnam in any way, how did you find coming home to Australia and the disgusting response that was dished out to fellow Vietnam veterans? I came home to Australia without orders on what I was to do. I was to fly, get off the aeroplane, and that was it. So I thought, well, I'll go back to my old unit, which I hadn't seen since 1964. I hadn't really been part of it since 1962. But I walked in the door of the commander at Clifton Gardens in Sydney, and his expression went from smiling to good grief, what the bloody hell are you doing here? And I discovered that he had no idea about what to do with me didn't like the fact that I was an engineer, but I was a paratrooper and I hadn't actually done any engineering in my life. He had lunch that day with the Assistant Director of Army Intelligence, who was complaining he couldn't get analysts. And my guy was complaining he had a captain he didn't know what to do with and didn't want. And talk about serendipity. I, two days later, turned up in Canberra and became head of strategic analysis for Army Intelligence on the Vietnam War. And I spent some happy years there developing systems and writing reports and briefing cabinet officers and so on. 
was wonderful. But the army still didn't have a clue what any of the people in the training team had done. A great injustice. Just continuing on with your service, Don, so what did you do after Canberra? I left the army and thought, I really need to do something different. And the Australian Public Service Board, also in Canberra, had as its head of personnel a guy I'd been to school with too. And he said, why don't you join? So I sat for the exam and got good marks and was inducted into the customs service and stayed with that for a little while. And eventually I went to DFAT, the Foreign Affairs Department, and they'd invited me to come because I'd done some sort of investigation into their organisation. And they were impressed and asked me to come. And I said, yes, I'll come if I can join the Diplomatic Corps. So I joined the Diplomatic Corps and got offered a posting to Indonesia, rented my house out and sold my car. And as I was packing up, the staff in my unit at Foreign Affairs all signed a paper threatening that they would go on strike if my posting wasn't cancelled because I was a new boy and didn't deserve a posting. Now, foreign Affairs said, oh, right, well, okay, you're not going to Jakarta, leaving me to have to find, to undo the lease of the house, buy another car, etc. Karma comes along, and some months later, I applied for a job to Naval Organisation and got a promotion of two rungs. And on the afternoon when the appeals period closed, I went to my big boss in foreign affairs and said, I'll be leaving in three weeks. And he uh, blew a gasket and said, what can we do to make you stay? I said, a written down guaranteed posting. So they organised a posting for me to Islamabad, which um, turned out to be absolutely brilliant. And I spent my time two years in Islamabad and then over in Dhaka, the former East Pakistan. After running around Vietnam and being shot at, people wanting to do nasty things, putting a price on my head, all that stuff, and nothing happened. I didn't shed any blood in Vietnam. As a diplomat, my ambassador was one of the grand old school of former uh, foreign office people inducted into Australia. He believed in intelligence. So he had sussed out that I should go to East Pakistan and see what the guerrillas, the Mukti Bahini, were planning to do on how the Pakistan government would react. This was the end of 71. And um, so I went over there and the Indians attacked. On the day I was with the local brigade commander, he offered me the chance to buckle on a Browning and go up to the front with him. And I uttered that Her Britannic Majesty's Australian Ambassador Plenipotentiary would not be pleased if I did that. So I'm out of here. And I got on the paddle wheel steamer, the last one to leave, sat on that, and we went up the rivers through the delta towards Dhaka over a three-day period. And during that time, the Mukti Bahini machine gunned and rifle shot the heck out of the boat because it contained all sorts of government officials and uh, advisers and what have you. I sat on the deck reading a book, Michener's Hawaii, because it seemed to fit the, the ambience of river paddlewheel steamers, only to then be challenged by our security group. Could I help them with their Bren gun, newly issued to them? So I showed them how to strip and assemble and clean it and how to aim it, how to change magazines. And then I went back to reading Hawaii and then the bad guys machine gun us again and uh, a bullet clipped me over the head and I fell over. The book survived and I lay down on the deck and I sat up and thought, I wonder what that was. I had no idea. Um, just a big thump hit me on the head up there, right up there. 
my colleague, a third secretary, came slithering out. He'd been hiding inside quite cleverly. Uh, he came slithering out and took one look at me and shrieked. And it turned out all my left shoulder and arm and side were covered in mud. I drenched my shirt. But I hadn't seen it. I'd been looking aft towards where the machine gunning had occurred. So there I was thinking, you know, this is bizarre. You run around the jungle for a year having fun and you sit on a paddle boat and somebody shoots you. How bizarre, Don. It was. So that brings to an end your sort of military wartime experiences. Yeah. So you come back to Australia and you've settled in and I understand you live down around uh, Eden on the south yes. coast. Yep. I, I hope you found peace at last. Oh, yeah. I feel really sorry for my colleagues in the training team who haven't found peace. There are very few of us left. I, I, I know there are some in Canberra. There are none down here that I've found. I still think about the war. I'm, I'm quite sure we did the right thing for the time. The political decisions were right for the geopolitical atmosphere at the time. And I get annoyed when people say, oh, well, you shouldn't have gone. And all of, all of what you did was wasted. And I think, no, no, we did good stuff. It wasn't permanent. It was, there were no guarantees. But we did what we could to suit the challenges then. And that's how people should think about it, in my view. If you were to look at Don McDowell's war that you engaged for your year in Vietnam, it was productive, it was positive with the people, you totally became immersed in that society and, and accepted it and, and, be, and, and, and loved it, and you looked after them, you nurtured them. And, and, and I think you, you epitomise what the Australian Army training team was for Vietnam. It was absolutely mission accomplished with you. And you should be justifiably proud for your good service and indeed for others in the team. But obviously you can speak for your own actions. And I feel a great sorrow for the ingratitude. And in those days, it was everything was bad about Vietnam. They had no idea what Don McDowell and these other good guys were doing in Vietnam. Consequently, this nation will forever hold its head in shame for the way it treated you and the likes of you. And I'm just glad that you have found your peace. And this nation will always owe a great debt of gratitude to you and the likes of you and the team for your wonderful service. So I'd like to thank you for coming and talking with us today. We just wanted to acknowledge your service, how you put your life on the line for us and the great work that you did in Vietnam. Thank you very much, Angus, for those kind words. Yes, I'm at peace. Yes, I'm still a believer in the cause that we were attached to at the time. And yes, talking to you and to other people from time to time about the war is a form of catharsis. It helps. So thank you. For more stories about the AATTV, go back to Season 1 and listen to Thomas Kay's interview with the most distinguished veteran of that unit. Number 15, Adrian Clooney's Ross. We've also touched on Keith Payne VC AM's book, which details his time in AATTV's Mike Force. In Season 5, listen to Keith Payne VC, No One Left Behind. For more about the war as a whole and reflections, listen to the Season 2 panel chat hosted by Angus Horden, panel, The Vietnam War. And for more on the training side of things, from earlier this season, check out number 133, Peter Watt. We've done a large number of Vietnam-era interviews. For more conversations about the war, go to www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com episodes and look for all the interviews listed as Vietnam. I'd also suggest checking out our mini-series, Life on the Sea. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube at Life on the Line Podcast, on Twitter at LOTL Pod, and on LinkedIn at Thistle Productions. Subscribe in your preferred podcast app 
on YouTube or through our website to never miss an episode. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cat Design. Music by Dan Van Werkhoven. Thanks for listening. And lest we forget.